Oh. Are we live? Yep. Oh. Thank you for joining today. If you watched yesterday's class, which was about secrets of the sukkah, you're going to love today's class because today we're going to be discovering the dark secrets of the sukkah. And as much as the class we had yesterday enabled you to appreciate the deeper message of Sukkot today, we're taking it to the next level. I want to preface this class with a little story that I've shared before. It's an important story because it highlights the, the contribution, if you will, the profundity that the Hasidic perspective adds. The Friedrich Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, was once sitting in a Parisian hotel. This is the story they tell. A man walked over to him and he said, Rebbe, why do we need Hasidus? Didn't we have Torah for millennia? What did these teachings, these doctrines add? The Friedrich Rebbe began to point out some of the finer architectural details of the beautiful hotel lobby they were sitting in. The man quickly interrupted the Friedrich Rebbe. Rebbe, he said, please answer my question. Don't change the subject. The Rebbe said, but I am answering your question. Did you notice these details before I pointed them out? The man was quick to admit that he hadn't. And the Rebbe said, this is the essence of Hasidus. It shines a bright light on the strata of Torah and the secrets that were lost in the shade have become revealed. My dear friends, yesterday's class, we talked about the secrets of the sukkah. We talked about the notion of the sukkah being, in a sense, a representation of Hashem's shechina, Hashem's embrace. We talked about the need for us to show appreciation for what Hashem gives us. And on both of those levels or schools of thought, we identify the reason for Sukkot taking place in the seventh month in Tishrei, not in the month of Nisan, when we left Mitzrayim. Today, we're going to be plumbing the depths, revealing the darkest secrets, and showing you how the power of the Sukkah is literally transformative. I hope you'll stay with me. I guarantee you, your Sukkot will be different if you watch, listen, and absorb the messages that I'm going to share with you today. Amazing secrets will come off these pages and they will necessarily uplift your consciousness, your viewpoint, your perspective, and yes, even your life. So let's start with, let's start with a text. Let's start with the scripture. I'm going to share with you a verse, a pasuk from the book of Psalms. It's a pasuk, a verse that's well known. It obviously refers to Rosh Hashanah. In fact, it is the verse that we chant when we make Kiddush on both days of Rosh Hashanah, when we come home from Shul. And yet, as I will show you, when you look at this verse, something is missing. From there we'll travel to a Midrash that's found on the book of Leviticus, Vayikra, in Parshas Emor. It seems to convey an idea, and yet, somehow, as they say, the zaltz and pfeffer, the seasoning, is missing. 
it isn't really explanatory. It, it almost seems strange. And then I will begin to share with you the Hasidic interpretation, the mystical, incredible secrets that the Rabbeim spilled. And this will illuminate the Pasuk, the Medrash, your Sukkah, and in a sense, really all of Yiddishkeit. Let's take it from the top. In the 81st Psalm, in the fourth verse, King David states, Tiku vachodesh shofar. Trumpet or sound the shofar in the month. Bakesa in its concealed state, leyom chagenu, for the day of our festival. Let's take a look at the commentaries and see what this pasuk, what this verse might mean. Rashi says, tiku, well, everybody knows what a tikiya is, it's a shofar blast. What is vachodesh? Says Rashi, vachodesh is bechidush halavona, in the renewal of the moon. We, the Jewish people, have lunar months. So the notion of a month being called chodesh, as the other commentaries are going to point out, is directly related to the idea that the month begins with chidush, the reappearance or novelty of the moon. Rashi says that the word bakese doesn't really mean concealed, but rather yom moed, an appointed time. Kavuah a day which was well set aside for this particular activity. He brings us a cross-reference from the book of Proverbs in the seventh chapter of Mishlei. We hear this notion of leyom hakese, Yavo Beito, on the appointed day, he'll be arriving at the home, Lamoid Hakavua, in its set aside or appointed time. The Mitsudas David, in his commentary, first tells us in Mitsudas Tzian that Bakesa Inyin's Man Miyuad, an appointed time. This would then mean Tiku Bachodesh, Shofar, blow in the Chodesh, indicative of Chidush Halavana, the reappearance of the moon, Bakesa in the day which is appointed, the day appointed as our festival. The Mitzudah David explains, means in the beginning of the month. In other words, on the first day of this month, tiku shofar, blow the shofar. So what is the appointed day? Well, the appointed time for this, he says, is Yom Chag. The day of our festival, that is Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so to recap, according to Rashi and the Mitsudis, the, the, the psalmist is telling us, sound the shofar and Rosh Hashanah, essentially. Let's take a look in the writing of Radak, Rabbeinu David Kimchi, the great, great Sephardic sage, who annotated and elaborated on much of Tanakh, much of the actual canon of the Jewish people, our Bible. Radak says, Bachodesh Shofar, Yom Aleph Shel Chodesh. It's the first day of the month. An example of this would be found in the book of Kings, where David HaMelech, uh, in the book of uh, Shmuel, where David HaMelech essentially has this conversation with Yonatan about tomorrow's Rosh Chodesh meal, the meal that he plans to miss. And then he asks Yonatan to gauge his father's response at seeing his empty seat. And the reason that it's called Chodesh is 
Bo, on that day, Tit Chadesh Halavana. That's the day that the moon is renewed or reappears for us in the heavens. V'chol HaChodesh, says Radak, the whole month, Nikra Shem Halavana. For us, Jewish people, the word month is always related to the moon. Specifically, the cycle of the moon, the reappearance of the moon. As the moon reappears, our month begins. As the moon wanes and then disappears from sight, we know the month has ended. Radak says that the Chodesh would then mean Rosh Chodesh. And that's the day we were commanded instructed by God to sound the shofar. Radak says, it seems to me that the idea of the teruah, the shofar blast, set aside for Rosh Hashanah, is because our ancestors, back in the land of Egypt, stopped working on this day. In other words, the beginning of the Exodus was on Rosh Hashanah. And we recall that when we sound the shofar, because Haterua, the broken sound of the shofar, is Siman Shiluach Avadim, is a sign that those in a period of indentured labor go free. You know, at the end of Yom Kippur, it's customary to sound the shofar. For some reason, the sounding of that shofar has become, well, very prominent in people's imagination. They somehow think it's the most important observance of the high holidays. It's disappointing when they find out it really isn't. But at the same time, there's something really special about it. Truth be told, on an exoteric level, the sounding of the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur is reminiscent of the sounding of the shofar that would take place in the land of Israel at the Jubilee at the close of Yom Kippur. Every 50 years, those who are in a period of indentured labor, meaning avdut olam, really in a sense servitude for posterity, would go free at the Jubilee. And the sign was the sound of the shofar. Correspondingly, we blow the shofar, we sound the shofar at the end of Yom Kippur to recall this notion of freedom in antiquity. Of course, it also really is a very powerful thing because it's what ends the holiest day of the year. It climaxes all of the power and profundity of Yom Kippur. The Rebbe once spoke of it as reminiscent of the future freedom shofar. The shofar that will indicate that Mashiach has finally arrived. But let's leave that on the side for a moment. We do see that there's a connection between Rosh Hashanah and between Yetziat Mitzrayim. Something we talked about in yesterday's class, in yesterday's presentation. The notion of Yetziat Mitzrayim, the birth of our nation, being at the core of so many of the mitzvot, so many of the holidays that we observe. Truth be told, however, the notion of blowing or sounding the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is really very much connected as well to the concept of teshuva. It's a wake-up call. As Rambam talks about it in his Laws of Tshuva, he says even though the shofar is a gzerat ha-katuv, even though it's a scriptural decree, we do so because God told us to, nonetheless, the message it brings with us is one of stirring of conscience, an awakening, a spiritual awakening. Time to return to Hashem, to experience rejuvenation and rehabilitation of the spirit, which in Hebrew is called tshuva. 
Now, what's difficult about this verse is that Rosh Hashanah is identified as Yom Chagenu, the day of our festival. The word Chag means celebration. And whilst Rosh Hashanah is celebrated, there's a somber element to its celebration. As the Shulchan Aruch tells us, we don't recite or chant or sing the Hallel on Rosh Hashanah because it's Yom Adin, it's a day of judgment. People don't say, Happy Rosh Hashanah. It's a day in which we are festive despite the fact that it's a day of judgment. And that's a sign of confidence. It's a way of, for us to demonstrate our surety that we know Hashem will give us another year of goodness, another year of life, and a year of blessing. But intrinsically, it isn't exactly a Chag. The mitzvah of rejoicing during your festivals, which is specifically delivered to us in the context of Sukkot, and Sukkot is called Chag in the vernacular, refers to Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, the three festivals of our nation, not the Rosh Hashanah. And so there's kind of a lingering question which never gets answered in the exoteric texts of the Jewish people. Why do we refer to this day as Yom Chagenu, Bakesa, in appointed time, but why Yom Chagenu? Until we receive the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov as distilled through his disciples, most chief prominently, ultimately the Alter Rebbe. This was never really understood. It's one of the incredible secrets that Hasidus shined a bright light on and transformed our perspective. We'll come back to this shortly. I want to take you now to the Medrash Rabbah, as I promised. The Medrash Rabbah that we are going to study together is found in Vayikra Rabbah, on the book of Leviticus. It's in the 30th chapter, towards the end of the second entry, and it's on Parshas Emor, which talks about the festival of Sukkot, as we discussed yesterday. This is found, of course, in the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, and there the Torah instructs us about the four kinds, and then goes on to talk about the holiday of Sukkot. So the Medrash says, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny that we call this Chagiga and Simcha. We use two different words. Chagiga is a festive celebration. Simcha is a joyous event or a joyous day. Why do we refer to it as both Chagiga and Simcha? Im Simcha, Lama Chagiga. If Simcha is the defining hallmark, happiness, why festive celebration? Im Chagiga, if celebration, Lama Simcha. That's the question Medrash asks. The Medrash responds, Omar Rabbi Oven. Rabbi Oven suggested that the way to understand this would be by means of a metaphor. Moshal. Here's a parable. Shnayim shenichnesu eitzeladayin. Two litigants entered a courtroom. They went to stand before the judge. Veles anan yadin an we don't know who has emerged victorious. They had their day in court, and now they're waiting for a verdict. Elo, he says, Manduna save the Ayon be a day, Ananya Dinan, the Hu Netzachayu. The one who emerges, Ba'ayan, Ba'ayan is 
a Greek word, as the Marzu points out. And it refers to the lulav. It refers to the palm friends. It was a custom, the Marzu says, in ancient times for people who were victorious to parade with a palm friend. The palm branch was a sign of victory. It's interesting to note that in the Bar Kokhva coins, they depicted palm trees and palm branches. So there's this notion, the Medrash says, and it, I don't know if it came from a Jewish source or somehow people picked, on, picked up on this, but in the Middle East, it seems that the culture, the popular culture of the day was that the palm branch was a sign of victory. Kach, Rav Oven goes on in the metaphor, Yisrael ve'um Yisraelim. We have this showdown every year. It's a showdown between the Jewish people and between her enemies. The nations of the world who seek to prosecute and persecute us. And every year there's a showdown. Obviously, this happens not only in a literal way, but what happens in our world is a reflection of deeper spiritual truths. Boyin umikatrigin, our enemies come before us and they point accusatory fingers. You know, the way the UN does all the time with Israel. But here, in this imagery, it's happening in a spiritual sense. Lefnei HaKadosh Baruch before God. It's happening on the Day of Judgment, Berosh Hashanah. The less, Anan Yadin Anman Natsach, but we don't know who is victorious. Have we repelled our accusers? Or have they successfully demonized our character, assassinated us? What will be the end? How will this year go? The Medrash goes on to say, we don't know, when the Jewish people step out from before the judge, before God. And their lulav and etrog is in hand. Now we know, says the Medrash, that Israel has indeed been victorious. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu comes along to the Jewish people and he talks to them in Leviticus chapter 23 and he says to them, after Rosh Hashanah, after Yom Kippur, make sure you take that palm branch by Yom Harishon. The Eitz Yosef, in his commentary on the Medrash, says, this is the answer to the original question. Why Chagiga and why Simcha? Why do we use two different expressions? Perhaps it's a question of redundancy. Perhaps it's a question of trying to ascertain what the difference might be between one expression of joy and the other. And the Eitz Yosef says, the first is the Simcha of Nitzachan. When you are locking horns with an adversary, there's a good deal of anxiety. When you win, there's a sense of relief, a sense of euphoric joy. But the second, he says, is Pirsum Hanitzachen, is the publicization of that when it goes out to everybody. It's nice when you know. It's even nicer when you get to speak about it and the whole world knows. So too, he says, Chagiga al Atzmos Hanitzachen, the festival. The festival is we're happy because we've been victorious, we've been vindicated in judgment. However, the simcha, 
the expression of effusive joy and happiness is mitzad shemefarsimim nitzchinam because they're able to publicize that. And that happens when we take the lulav in our hands. It's interesting that if we take a look in the Pirush of Maharzu, he speaks about the idea of Netzach Yisrael, which means the eternity of the Jewish people. And he kind of, he parallels that with the word Notzach, which means victory. Both are, of course, spelled the same way. And he says, the idea of Am Yisrael being victorious against the accusatory voices is also, in a sense, an embodiment of the eternity of the Jewish people. So Netzach Yisrael is being celebrated. Not only our victory, but our eternity. We're here to stay. Despite the many challenges we have had over millennia, despite the incredible difficulties we have faced, we have always emerged victorious and we will always triumph. And that's the message of the Lulav. And in a larger sense, the message of the festival of Sukkot. Those are the words of the Medrash. What really does that mean? What really does it mean when we say, we went before the judge, but we didn't know who was victorious. And then we emerged and we're holding a lulav. Ah, let us rejoice. Now we're victorious. What does that mean? How do we translate that into real time, if you will? Clearly, there seems to be a link between Rosh Hashanah and between Sukkot. Exactly is it? And how are we to best understand it? And so, with that verse of Psalms, verse 4 of Psalm 80, 81, and with this medrash as our launching pad, I will now, my dear friends, take you to a mimer of the Alter Rebbe. This mimer of the Alter Rebbe is found in Lakuta Teira. This is towards the end of the mimer. The mimer begins with the words, Tiku Bacho de Shofar. And it's a remarkable, amazingly illuminating mimer about the shofar and what it represents. And towards the end of the mimer, the Alter Rebbe returns to the words Bakesa Yom Chagenu in its appointed time. Now, as we've learned, Yom Chagenu on a literal level is referring to Rosh Hashanah. Clearly, Radak said so, but so does David. However, the question that we pointed out, which is actually articulated by the Mittel Rebbe, Alter Rebbe's son and successor, Rosh Hashanah isn't called a Chag or a moed. It isn't referred to as a holiday or a festive day. And so the Alter Rebbe is, explains that this notion of bakesa on the appointed day comes and reveals itself liom chagenu, meaning on Sukkot. In other words, tiku bachode shofar, when we blow the shofar, sound the shofar at the beginning of the month, Bakesa, in its appointed time, it's revealed, its energy is appreciated or absorbed on the day of our rejoicing, meaning Sukkot. In other words, the Alter Rebbe is going to explain that the process of the beginning of our new year begins with Rosh Hashanah and the sounding of the shofar. Those are days of awe. And then that diffuses into, or evolves into, metamorphoses into the days of joy that conclude this month of holidays, 
this month of Chodesh Hashvi'i, the seventh month, which is also understood and appreciated as Chodesh Hasavi'i, moving the dot from the right head of the Shin to the left, meaning month of satiation, saturated with spiritual energy, filled with incredible empowerment that lasts all year long. Pirush, let me share with you the words of the Alter Rebbe. The divine will and grace, which is revealed in Rosh Hashanah, it happens through the concealment. And that is to say that the Bakesa, we're spelling it now with an Aleph, not with a He. It's a rabbinic play on the word. That represents Bechinus Histalkus Shabbatchilas Leil Rosh Hashanah. As the Baal Shem Tev explained, on the evening of Rosh Hashanah, it's as if God removes his active presence from our world. The world is, proverbially speaking, on autopilot. God is less engaged with his creation. Remember, Rosh Hashanah was the day that creation, all of a sudden, came into being. A, a world that's filled with mountains and trees and waterfalls and constellations doesn't have meaning unless there is humanity who inhabits that world who can choose to be righteous. The angels don't have a choice. They are filled with nothing but Yetzer Tov, with the goodness of the desire to be selfless and serve God. Those angels, of course, were brought into existence when God set all of the heavens into motion. That happens on the fourth day of creation. In fact, it says, a bird will fly, that refers to the angels that Hashem created. And then, and then Hashem created animals. But the animals that Hashem created only know of selfishness. They're not capable of altruism. Some animals are very altruistic because that's their nature. They are little balls of furry love. Not because they choose to be kind, but because they're predisposed to it. That cute little cocker spaniel isn't any nicer than that mean Doberman. They just have different natures. They didn't choose for that to be that way. But as the Sefer Mitzvah's Koton says when he speaks about the mitzvah of tshuva, the angels who only have a Yetzer Tov, the animals who only have a Yetzer Hara, turn to the human being who's given both. Yetzer Tov and Yetzer Hara. And they say to him, what are you doing? You have the ability to soar beyond the angels because you can choose to be good. Or you have the possibility of sinking beneath the animals because you chose to be bad. As the Alter Rebbe explains in Tanya, in the 38th chapter, it is only a human being who can really be rotten and evil. It is only a human being who can really sink to the depths of what we would call moral deprivation. So every single year on Rosh Hashanah, God, if you will, renews his lease on life, love, and liberty. Will the world endure for yet another year? In the beginning, God created the world freely, so to speak. There was nobody who asked for God to be king. That's the meaning of Olam Chesed Yubana. The world was created as an act of benevolence and divine kindness. But then Adam 
fulfilled his role to the T. He brought the animals together. He said, He kind of brought all of creation in tandem. He chose to reach out to God. Unfortunately, a short while later, he chose to go against and to rebel against Hashem. That's the sad beginnings of humanity. But our job is to rectify the original sin of Adam Achava, an act of rebellion eating from the forbidden fruit. Every year in Rosh Hashanah, God renews His lease on creation. It's like the world's birthday. It's like your year's end and you start all over again. But unlike the first year of creation, now God wants us to play an active role in that. He wants us to call out to Him through the sound of our prayer and the sound of our shofar. And the Alter Rebbe says, this is the meaning of bakesa. Bakesa means concealed, does not only refer to the notion that the moon can't be seen on the eve of Rosh Hashanah as it's about to reappear, but in fact, God's will or engagement with our world is bakesa. It kind of recedes back into a state of concealment. And this is a zman histalkus hachayis akloli. It's a time of recession for all of the divine animating vivifying force of the Shana Sha'avra, of the year that's gone by. Uba Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah, al yedei hatfilot vahatkiot, through or by virtue and dint of our prayer, by virtue and dint of our shofar blasts, who mitchadesh chayes kloliacher, God renews his bond with creation. A new program is proverbially written, and that will be downloaded during the course of the year. Every year this happens on Rosh Hashanah. You know, here's an interesting expression. The Friedrich Rebbe once repeated in the name of his father a statement that his father had made in the year 1890. He said, on Rosh Hashanah, towards evening, is die Welt an Abgeschwachte. He says the world is a, in a weakened in a weakened state. It's almost like a tired state, a faint state. And that faint state of existence has to be transformed through us. That's the mission, that's the mandate of the Jewish people on Rosh Hashanah. That's the notion of us crowning God as king all over again. I once heard that somebody asked the Rebbe's father, if it's true, why don't we see it? I mean, if the eve of Rosh Hashanah represents God, if you will, pulling back, why wouldn't we see any symptoms of that? To which the Rebbe's father perverted, per reportedly said, you don't see it? He said, even the waters of the Dnepr, he was the chief rabbi of Yakatirnislav, today known as Dnepr Petrovsk, on the mighty river Dnepr, and he said, even the waters of the Dnieper River flow differently on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. I guess you have to be a very holy Kabbalist to be able to see things like that. Not something that you or I will be able to see, but it's real. This is the real deal. That's what Rosh Hashanah is about. And now the Alter Rebbe says, this, this process that begins on Rosh Hashanah 
becomes more and more profound and powerful. It waxes and grows ad Yom HaKippurim until we get to Yom Kippur. Sha'az then, at the climax of Yom Kippur, B'ne'ilah, as the gates are proverbially closing. Closing, as we'll soon see, perhaps not before us, but behind us. And as though gates, that's Gemar HaAliyot. We, we yearn for Hashem. We reach out for God. We elevate ourselves and everything that we are in contact with has become closer as we are elevated into a higher state of consciousness and being. This is the time when we are totally forgiven. And then it is written, Lifne Havaya Titaharu, the Alter Rebbe says, Lemaila Bebechinas Havaya. Havaya is the name of God, the ineffable tetragram, which we cannot pronounce, but we know means the notion of Havia, bringing the world into existence. Lifne Havaya means, from a Hasidic perspective, as the Magad of Mizrich explained many times, to go even past that, so to speak, to reach to even deeper level, not the world being brought into existence by the miraculous, vivifying energy of the Creator, but going even deeper representing a more profound relationship, transcending the frame of creation itself. Ah, then the Alter Rebbe says that through the incredible Aveda, through the, this devotion and the dedication and our service, our love and our loyalty to Hashem, which we experience together in an exalted and elevated state during the beginning of the year, during these 10 days of tshuva, of spiritual resuscitation, rehabilitation, and return to Hashem, then as a result of all this, nimshach liyoyim chageinu. Then it is accessed and drawn forth. Then it is brought into the day of our festivity. That's the notion of Chag Zman Simchatenu, the time of our joy. Hitgalut HaSimcha, the time of our joy being revealed. So you see the notion of this, this uh, Sukkot being the climax, being the conclusion, being the ending, if you will, the happy ending of what begins on Rosh Hashanah, which is alluded to by the Medrash, now we're understanding what this means. Now we're having a deeper appreciation of the words of David HaMelech, Bakesa Liyom Chagenu, that in the appointed day of our festival, all of a sudden, everything comes to light. In a mimer from the Rebbe, this is a mimer that was delivered in 1977, just before Sukkot, it was edited by the Rebbe. I will share with you a snippet of that mimer. He reviews this. He says, this is the notion, from a mystical perspective, Yom Chagenu refers to Sukkot, as is explained in many places. The Rebbe says, All of the things which were Bakesa, Bakesa on a literal level means it's appointed time. However, on a deeper mystical level means, Bikisui, the Helen, all of that which was covered over, all of that which was in a state of latent potential or concealment, in the day that precedes the day of our festivity, and especially this refers to the things which were the things that were in a state of concealment on Rosh Hashanah, they are revealed on Sukkot. So the energy of Rosh Hashanah is actually revealed on Sukkot. That's when we can tap into this heightened spirituality. And that's the meaning of Bakesa Yom Chageno and the idea of Tiko Bachode Shofar. 
as the Medrash says that we just read earlier. In other words, that on Sukkot it becomes revealed the victory of Am Yisrael. What's the victory of Am Yisrael? Do we seek to do harm? Do we seek to diminish, subtract, or overwhelm, or dominate anybody? That has never been the vision of our prophets and our sages. That's never been the yearning of the Jewish people. World domination? Conquering other nations? Never. Our vision, our goal, our mission, and our purpose has been to illuminate the world, to elevate the world. If you must use the word conquer, it's called conquer with love and light. To bring the spiritual liberty of letting the neshama, the soul, soar to every single member of the human race. That is the victory of the Jewish people. And being able to access and to harness and to curate the energy of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippurim in a way that it can be revealed on Sukkot is That's in a way that's seen by everybody as the Rebbe goes on to explain later on in the Maimer. This is the notion of Sukkot where we pray for in the time of the Temple, we brought offerings for all nations of the world. The Rebbe links this to another Medrash. This is a, a Medrash or a teaching of our sages, which is found in the Gemara, in our Jerusalem version of the Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi on Rosh Hashanah, in the first chapter, in the third halacha. And it's also brought down, actually, in the Torah, in the Shulchan Aruch, in Simon, Tov Kuf Pe'alef. Chapter 581. The Shulchan Aruch says there that the notion of the Jewish people's experience of joy on Sukkot is ultimately a reflection of the joy of Rosh Hashanah. But on Rosh Hashanah, the joy was muted. It was concealed. The words of our sages, Eza uma ku'umazu. What nation is like, like your nation? who knows, so to speak, the workings, the maneuverings of the divine. We, Am Yisrael, we know that Hashem will perform miracles and wonders for us. We know that despite our shortcomings, our faults, and oftentimes our omissions, we will nonetheless merit to be victorious in judgment. And being meritorious in judgment will mean that we don't have to approach our day in court with anxiety. Davar Pashatu, it then becomes overt and obvious, Shabiyom Rosh Hashanah, that on the day of Rosh Hashanah, before we receive that judgment, that we have the joy of the Kativa Vachatimatova, that we have the joy of this, so to speak, good inscription and seal. However, as the Rebbe goes on to point out in the Mimer, that's all in a latent state. The joy is muted. The goodness is still concealed. You know, there's a custom on Erev Yom HaKippurim, when we have a mitzvah to eat, that the chicken soup of the two meals we have contains not matzah balls, but kreplach. And kreplach are like a phyllo dough, 
with a little piece of meat, meat or piece of chicken inside. And what it's supposed to represent is the gemar chatimatova, that tasty piece of meat, but surrounded with a piece of dough because it's still concealed. It hasn't yet been revealed. We know that it will be revealed. We're confident Hashem will give us the things we ask for, but we haven't received it yet. That's actually the interpretation of that time-honored custom. And therefore the tachlis and shleimus of the netzachen will be, begili, will be revealed only on Sukkot. So bakese, that which is concealed, comes liyom chagenu, is revealed to us on the day of our festival. That this security, this surety, this confidence, this certainty that Hashem will do good things for us can't be acted upon until it's revealed. And that's what Sukkot is all about. From this perspective, when else could Sukkot be celebrated? This is really the climax of the spiritually saturated beginning of the year, which opens, punctuated by days of awe, reverence, and then metamorphoses into days of serene celebration and uplifting joy. To help us understand this a little bit better, the Rebbe goes on in that mimer to tell us that it's not only Rosh Hashanah, but actually, this refers to Yom Kippur as well. Now, the Alter Rebbe did say that in Lakota Torah, but here, the Rebbe very novelly says, that's alluded to in Psalm 81 as well, because in the book of Seder Hayomim, Yom Kippur is referred to as Rosh Hashanah. Even though it's on the 10th day of Tishrei, the seventh month, it's still referred to as the beginning, the Rosh Hashanah. And we know that the first 10 days comprise a single unit. As our sages told us, Elo Asara Yomim Shebein Rosh Hashanah Liyom HaKippurim. These are the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but there are no 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. There are only seven days, because two days are Rosh Hashanah. And the tenth day is Yom Kippur. Hainu Shereish Hashanah V'yem HaKippurim Nichlolin Be'aisen Asaras Hayomim. The days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, as the Rebbe had already explained much earlier, this is printed in Lukut HaSichas Chelek Dalad, on page 1144, that the Rebbe's Chiddush, the Rebbe's novelty, uh, to the answer of the question of ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and the Rebbe says ten days mean between the starting point, the opening of Rosh Hashanah, and the closing of the climax of Yom Kippur. All of this, between these two poles, these two points, that's the ten days of penance. Those are the ten days that herald and open the new year with a sense of awe and reverence, deep respect and commitment to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to the Almighty. And therefore, whatever it is that's unique to Rosh Hashanah is also unique in the days that follow and only comes to its fruition. It only matures on Yom Kippur. So if it's about Rosh Hashanah, it'll necessarily reach its climax on Yom Kippur. As the Alter Rebbe just said in Lukut and I'm 
showing you how the Rebbe reads into the Lukut HaTeda. That's the point. That when we reach out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the, on the day of Rosh Hashanah with our prayer and with our shofar, what we're really doing is laying our soul bare. We're really reaching out to Hashem by calling from the depths of our soul. Mima'amakim as we say in Psalm 130, which is recited for the entirety of those 10 days. I call out to Hashem from the depths of my soul. And that calling out to God in the depths of the soul is revealed in its profoundest essence, the climax of Yom Kippur. It begins on Rosh Hashanah. It only reaches maturation at the close of Yom Kippurim. But it's still Bekesah. It's still in the beginning of the year. It's still in a, re, a reveal, a, re, a concealed state. It isn't yet revealed. It's still in a state of latent potential. Because, because until it's revealed, we can't really rejoice yet. There's a famous mashal which is brought in the Siddur im Dach, the Siddur with Hasidic commentary. And the metaphor there is having joy, knowing that you have these precious gemstones in a sealed box, but you can't compare it to the joy when you finally figure out how to open the box. When you open the box and you now can see the gemstones that are yours, the joy is ever so much greater. It's nice to get a gift. The real joy is when you get to unwrap the gift and reveal that which is concealed under the wrapping or the casing. And so there's a joy. Of course there's a joy that punctuates the first days of the year. A Yid is always enjoined to serve Hashem with joy. Ivdu es Hashem besimcha, serving Hashem with joy is something that's obligatory 365 days a year. But it's not the overwhelming emphasis. The emphasis in the first days of the year is the other end of the spectrum. These are days of awe, Yamim Noraim. So whilst there's a joy, it's, it's muted, it's concealed. It's revealed on Sukkot. It's a process. It's developed over time. To better understand this notion that the Rebbe speaks about here in this Mimer, about the Neshama being revealed in its fullest sense, which is ultimately what the concept of Rosh Hashanah is about, let me share with you something that the Rebbe clarifies for us in Lukut Asichas, also in Chelek Dalet, a little bit later than what I just quoted before. He goes on to talk about the five levels of everyone's neshama. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, followed by Chaya and Yechida. A simple metaphor for this would be that Nefesh represents action. You know, engaging in the world around us. Nefesh is the body and soul, as they are fused, as you're awake and engaged with the world around you. Ruach represents the notion of communication. You aren't doing anything about it, but you're able to communicate, or at least speak about it. Neshama represents everything as it exists in your thought process. You haven't really revealed it yet. You're very much aware of it, though. You've thought about it carefully. And Chaya represents the idea of your higher consciousness. You haven't even thought about it or put it into words in your own mind yet, but it's something you have an awareness of. 
And then there's the deep subconsciousness or the pre-consciousness, the core essence of your being. That represents yichida, the quiddity or essence of your soul. You know, interestingly, the English word quiddity, which really refers to the core essence, comes from the word quid in Latin, which means five. And that's because the ancients who created the language of Latin, which is based essentially on Greek, believed in four elements badly mistranslated into fire, earth, water, and, 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 uh, and wind, better translated as, in modern language, energy. That's what fire, that's what H really is. Liquidity, solid, and gas. Those are the essential building blocks of nuclear physics. But they referred to a deeper spiritual essence. Well, they called it ether, ethereal. That was the quint essence, number five. In the language of early Jewish philosophers, the koich hahiuli, the power of all the ability, of all wherewithal, the source of it all, the deepest pre-consciousness. The Rebbe points out at the end of that sicha on Parsha Sazinu that Yom Kippur is the only day in which we have not one, not two, not three, not four, but five prayers. Mayrev, Shachris, Musaf, Mincha. These are things we do every Rosh Chodesh, every Shabbat and Yom Tov. But only once a year do we get the fifth Ne'ilah. And he says this represents the profoundest expression of the soul as we come to the climax of what was begun on Rosh Hashanah, our yearning, our crying out to Hashem, our elevation, as the Alter Rebbe talked about in Lakota Torah, ilu yachar ilu, going from height to height, coming to the highest level. And then we reach the fifth prayer, the climax of Yom Kippur, tefilas ne'ila, vertin in nizgala bechinas hayechidish in the neshama. That's when the quintessence, the quiddity of the neshama is laid bare, is exposed. And that's when we experience true oneness with Hashem. And in that place, our deepest subconsciousness of truest oneness and union, nobody else is present. It's just us and the King. And that's why the Rebbe says it's called Ne'ilah, the closing or locking of the doors, but not closing before us, rather the locking of the doors behind us. The doors close, and we are alone with the Creator. We are alone with our beloved Father. We're alone with the King. And even though this is the essence of Ne'ilah, it is an idea that permeates the entirety of the day. And that's why we have the expression of our sages who said, that this day of Yom Kippur is Yom Shenitchayev B'chamesh Tfilot. It's a day which asks for or demands five prayers. The whole day reflects this idea. This is the day in which Yechida illuminates. It's the day in which Yechida, the quintessence, the quiddity of the soul, is laid bare. So that's the climax, really, my dear friends, of what begins on Rosh Hashanah. And that's revealed on Sukkot. What is the essence of the Sukkah? 
the essence of the sukkah is the schach. We talked about that in yesterday's class, and the sukkah secrets in great detail. The Alter Rebbe adds, as I pointed out yesterday, the notion of litzel, the shade. The shade, because, because the walls of the sukkah merely enable the shade to be covering some kind of structure. What you make those walls of is nobody's business. We don't really care. The focus is on the covering. When we talked about the Gemara in Masechet Sukkah yesterday that describes the covering as being reminiscent of the clouds of glory or the shelter we created, the emphasis was on understanding and appreciating the details of how we create that shade, even on a literal legal level. It's all about the shade. So the Sukkah is made in the shade. Very interestingly, in Lakuta Sichas Chelik Beis, in the Hesophos, in the edition, it's in Parsha Se'eh. The Rebbe there goes on to suggest that the notion of Sukkot, sorry, uh, this, it's in, it, is, it is in Chelik Beis, it's in page 425, wrong bookmark. And Asicha of Chaga Sukkot, the Rebbe goes on to say that the Sukkah is the climax, represents the full development of the avoda of Aseret Yimei Tshuva, of the 10 days of return, the 10 days of awe, with which we start the new year. That means, Allah Hamshachas, all of the holiness, all of the energy, which we are able to bring forth during these 10 days, are revealed in the days of Sukkot. Only on Sukkot, it comes Bekav HaSimcha, in a dimension of serene joy. And the Rebbe gives us like, Almost a literal breakdown of this. He says, Aserati Mechuva can be broken down into three dis- distinct segments. There is the two days of Rosh Hashanah. There is the last day, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, or at one minute. And then there are the seven days that actually populate the space between the end of Rosh Hashanah and the beginning of Yom Kippur. And the Rebbe says, that all three segments are revealed in our sukkah. It all begins with the shade. We're going to talk about being made in the shade, and then we'll move on to the dark secrets of the shade. In the word schach, shade or covering, that which is on top of the sukkah, there are three Hebrew letters, samach, and then we have the word chaf, twice. It's written with a smaller, lowercase chaf and a long chaf. The Rebbe suggests this is directly linked to the sound of the shofar. Why? (laughs) Well, it's elementary, my Watson. Samach has the numeric equivalent of 60. There are 60 tikiot that are sounded on Rosh Hashanah. There are 20 sounds called shvarim and 20 sounds called truah. Schach, 60, 20, and 20. Together they comprise the mea kolot, the hundred sounds that represent the shofar experienced in its fullness during the day of Rosh Hashanah. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur represents the avoda of the ketoret, the most important service, the focal point of Yom Kippur, was the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, 
entering into the Holy of Holies but once a year. And he would enter the Holy of Holies once a year in a cloud of smoke. Ki ba'anan el hakaporet. For only in that cloud of smoke, only in that plume of incense, can the Kohen Gadol enter. In other words, the key ingredient in the essence of Yom Kippur is the Ketoret. The Ketoret was brought all year long, 365 days a year. But on Yom Kippur, it was on a whole new level. On Yom Kippur, the holiest Jew entered the holiest space with the holiest form of service in the Beit HaMikdash. That representing the profoundest oneness, the concept of ketoret, which incidentally, in Aramaic, means not, or tied as one. And so, the Mittel Rebbe explains in a mimer, in a sefer called Ateret Rosh, and he also talks about this later on in his Maimarim, in, in, in the Maimarim on, on Sukkot. This is something, a, a concept that's elaborated on by the subsequent Rebbeim. It's found in Erat there's a mimer from the Rebbe Marash about it called Vekocha. It's also found in a famous mimer of the Rebbe Rashab and Tafresh on Zion. And it's alluded to in multiple discourses of our Rebbe, one of which I'm going to be sharing with you soon. The idea that the smoke, the cloud of the Ketoret, later metamorphoses to become the shade of the Sukkah. And that's going to be what the dark secrets of the Sukkah are all about but let's come back to that in a moment. Lastly, the Rebbe says, the third segment of Aseret Yemei Tshuva, seven days. Do you know that the Arizal said that the seven days of the week, represented by the seven days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, give us the opportunity to do Teshuva, to kind of make up and elevate the seven days of the week. So that, that's to say that the Sunday of Aseret Yemei Tshuva allows us to elevate all the Yom Rishons of the year that's passed. The second day, Yom Sheni, or Monday as they call it, is an opportunity for us to elevate or rectify all the Mondays. Seven days of tshuva. Seven days in which we yearn for a state of greater oneness with Hashem, in which together we experience sincere regret for the omissions and even sins of commission, chas v'shalom, of the past year resolving that this new year is going to be so different in Meretz Hashem. And then that's experienced in a state of joy because we have seven days of Sukkot. And so in each day, by spending time in the Sukkah, rejoicing and celebrating, we're able to elevate not only the days of the week that have gone by, but in fact to infuse all the Sundays, all the Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and of course Shabbat, with serene joy, with happiness, with, with a sense of, of elevated celebration. So that Be'ezrat Hashem, all the days of the week, and by extension, all the days of the year, will be happy ones. And that's the original happy days. Happy days. We should live happy days. We should serve Hashem with simcha all year. That comes from Sukkot, my friends. When we rejoice on Sukkot during those seven days, it enables us to impregnate happiness into all the days of the year that will follow. So you really can see that the concept of Sukkot is the notion of 
having oversized influence on the entire year in the same way that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur do. And I want to focus now in our climax on the dark secrets of the sukkah. It's all about the schach. We established that yesterday. We've highlighted and emphasized that today. The schach, as we heard, is a representation of the, the climax of Yom Kippur. The climax of Yom Kippur, the high point of Yom Kippur in Temple times, was the incense. Ki ba'anan e'ra'e That is how the Kohen Gadol was able to enter on behalf of the entire nation, the holiest place in the world. He came in on the wings of that, of that ketoret, of that smoke. For one moment. Smoke. Smoke is like darkness. It's a concealment. Clouds. A cloudy day isn't a happy day. A cloudy day is a day we don't see the sun. Why would the deepest level of connection to God be metaphorized or expressed with the notion of a cloud or concealment? That is the question. The question that we will seek to answer. So there are a number of my marim in the range of Hasidus. I'm focusing specifically on a mimer that the Rebbe delivered on the second day of Sukkot in the year 1953. Sukkot Shechamosa, Miruba Mitzlosa, The Rebbe opens the mimer with, with questions, questions about darkness, questions about cloud. He says, cloudy days represent the opposite of optimism and joy and goodness, and concealment is the thing we try to avoid. So what does it mean that the essence of the Sukkah is made with concealment. And why is the sukkah about shelter or concealment? The sun, after all, represents the brilliant energy of creation. You know, that, that God is sometimes metaphorized as the sun. Kishemesh umogin havayelikim, the sun and its covering are a metaphor, a parable for God and God's light. And here we want to shield ourselves from the sun. And we need to have more shade than sun. Why? Why obsess over shade? Who wants to be made in the shade when we can experience the brilliant sunlight? What's up with this darkness? And the Rebbe says that it all boils down to a pasuk, to a verse that's found in the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms. And I'm going to analyze, we're going to take a look at this book of Psalms together. In the 18th Psalm, verse 13, verse 12, pardon me, David HaMelech says, Yoshes Choshech Sisro, he made darkness his concealment. Sivivotav Sukato Cheshkat Mayim. He surrounded his shelter out of the darkness of the waters. Ove Shokim in the dense clouds of the heavens. So, on a deeper mystical level, the notion of this darkness is indicative of a different kind of darkness. A different kind of darkness. You see, from a human perspective, darkness symbolizes the unknown or even the unknowable. We're afraid of darkness. Darkness gives us anxieties. Nobody likes being left in the dark. But as Hasidus explains, we view the spiritual worlds that lie beyond the reach of our limited human intellect as if they're shrouded in darkness. 
as if there's something that we're in the dark about. We consider the material reality that we live in to be illuminated. But ironically, the very opposite is true. From God's perspective, darkness is not concealment, but darkness refers to Hashem's departure from His origins, if you will. Darkness is our world from Hashem's perspective. Our world is the world in which we don't have the ability to perceive or see the truth of Hashem's presence. Our world is the world of darkness. That which we think is dark is the illumination of God. It's beyond our ability to see. In the Mimer, the Rebbe says that Helen, there's a Helen which is Shaykh Legilui. When we speak about concealment, in the terminology of concealment as it can be revealed so or something that can be revealed then concealment is a negativity so we may be in the dark now but hopefully will be brought into the light in other words that which is being concealed from us will be revealed in our world darkness is the absence of light in our world darkness is that which has yet to be uncovered but then there is an intrinsic darkness, an intrinsic darkness of that which is beyond the possibility of our apprehension. And that refers to the truth of divinity and godliness. The Rebbe metaphorizes here and he says, imagine if you could, a tremendous mentor, a brilliant teacher, a teacher who conveys many messages to his star pupils, to his inner coterie of disciples, and he conveys many deep and profound messages, some of which the pupils and disciples are still in the dark over. But as they will age and mature, and as they will begin to matriculate, or articulate, or develop their ability to think and to analyze, to apprehend and appreciate, they will come to a deeper understanding. This is a Torah concept that states that it takes 40 years to be ko'im inish adaita derabe, to fully appreciate the profundity and the depth of the teachings one received. Now, the teacher may no longer be physically alive, and yet the students are only coming into a new understanding. He never shared anything else. He didn't tell them anything new that they hadn't heard earlier, but they were in the dark. They were in the dark because they didn't fully understand and appreciate it. It was kind of in code. It was tucked into the folds of the things they did understand and appreciate. And as they continued to become more experienced and wiser, they began to appreciate that which they had heard and learned decades before. The maturation of this is after 40 years of learning and development. And so we're talking about something that was initially concealed, but later revealed. Then the Rebbe says, there's another kind of profundity. There's, there's the teacher who is so far beyond the pupils and disciples, so, so far advanced, light years ahead of what they'll ever be able to understand, that in order for this great master to share anything, he first has to really, in a sense, block out or clean the slate he has to stop thinking as he or she thinks and then rearticulate whatever it was in simpler fashion. The full profundity 
the essence of the master's mind will always remain beyond the pupil. It's something that will always be in the dark over, not because it hasn't yet been concealed, but because it's simply beyond the scope of their possibility. That's the darkness we speak about here. In other words, the Rebbe says that the true light of divinity is beyond the possibility of our understanding or vision. We call it dark, but in fact it's light. We call this open and revealed, but the openness and revelation of materiality is necessarily the result of God's concealment. In the metaphor that I've shared so many times, if you're in a dark movie theater, the picture is so clear. The virtual reality is so powerful. But if the lights go on, the picture fades. If the area is flooded with light, you don't see anything at all. The truth is that we're all bathed in God's light, God's presence. But if we would be aware of that light, if we could see it, we wouldn't see reality. We couldn't exist as we do now. So our existence is based on darkness and concealment. And we desperately try to pierce the veil and see a little bit of the Creator, know a little bit of intimacy, of closeness, of oneness with Hashem. Tiny points of light appear as we puncture that very thick and dark veil, slightly illuminating the darkness we live in. But the true darkness is that which is beyond our fathomability. And here's the dark secret. The dark secret is that the deepest essence of divinity can't be understood, it can't even be felt, but it can be experienced. Because when we spend time in our sukkah, we're sitting in God's embrace, literally. The dark clouds of the Ketoret represent not the concealment as we tend to think of darkness, but rather the intrinsic, essential darkness. A darkness which represents something that is beyond the scope of our ability to illuminate. On Sukkot, we achieve the greatest intimacy, the greatest oneness with God, even if we can't understand it. Even if we can't really feel it, that's the truth. And the joy, the joy of Sukkot, is the expression of the joy we feel because of the oneness that we've been able to achieve. In the Mimer, the Rebbe goes on to explain that the Ketoret represents the transformation of, of Klippa, of the dark side of things. He says the Ketoret itself is inedible, bitter, we tend to elevate the physical, the material, by consuming it. And after it's consumed, we use its energy to perform acts of holiness. But we can't eat non-kosher food. We can't elevate that. The Ketorah, however, represents taking even non-kosher substances, even things which are bitter and beyond the pale of consumption, and using them to create an aroma which sets our spirits free. It represents the transformation of the greatest darkness into blinding light. 
The idea of 11 Yud Aleph Samamani Haktores represent the wild, chaotic, untamed world, the world of Tohu. Our world is a world which is fixed and measured, a world that's calibrated, a world of rhyme and reason. But there is a world of insane energy, out of control, wild, raging, incredible, powerful energy. It's called Tohu. Experienced in its literal form, it's nothing but death and destruction. It's like a nuclear meltdown. But the Ketoret represents harnessing that nuclear energy. And as it's turned into smoke, as its nuclear essence is ripped apart by the fire, and as its plume of smoke is emitted, and we know that Ebbe goes on to say in the Mimer that the wetter, the wetter the substance is, the more smoke is created. And the moistness or the hydration of something represents its delight, its pleasure, like things that are luscious and succulent. The delights of this material world, which are called mayim matzmichim kolmine it is the hydration, it's the element of, of, of water, if you will, or liquidity, which bring forth all things that are delightful and delicious. And so instead of reveling or immersing ourselves in the delight of the physical world, we ignite our neshama with a holy fire, and that lets forth or allows the spirit to soar, which takes on the imagery of the plume of smoke. That's what the Ketorah is. That's what the Ketorah was in the Beit HaMikdash. That's what happens in our life on Yom Kippur. And that energy represents us then having the privilege of sitting under the shade of that proverbial intrinsic darkness where in our sukkah we are literally sitting under the Shekhinah in Hashem's embrace. That shade, that darkness is the greatest closeness we can ever achieve. Spending time in your sukkah is the closest you'll ever be to God Almighty. There's no other time you can sit in God's lap there's no other time you can sit surrounded, if you will, by Hashem's hands in the presence of holiness. That's what the sukkah represents. And because the sukkah represents that, it represents the idea of Yom Kippur, the transformation of zdonot, of negative energy, of bad things, into zachuyot, meritorious things. It's the energy of Torah that can transform Demerits into merits. It's the energy of the sukkah that can sanctify and spiritualize mundane, everyday conversations. Because as long as you're speaking nice things, if you do it in the sukkah, you're fulfilling a mitzvah. The simple act of sipping a cup of coffee or tea, the simple act of doing the most ordinary, mundane thing like mealtime or a social event with friends is sanctified once a year because you do it in the sukkah. And Hashem wants us to spend as much time with Him in that sukkah. That's the essence of the sukkah. And that, my friends, is the dark secret of the schach. That's the notion of yoshes choshech sisri, of the darkness, that which is beyond the possibility of us being able to reach through our minds or hearts experienced in the flesh 
It emphasizes the powerful profundity in mitzvahs performed in actuality. The sukkah, by its very definition, the Rebbe says, represents the notion of b'chol of the ability that Hashem gives us to be able to experience all things material and mundane as mitzvahs and spiritually magnificent. So we have a chatim tova. We've been promised a good inscription. It's going to be a great year of plot arenu, of wonders unmasked. The joy, the joy begins on Sukkot. We revel in this, in that Simcha, Be'ezrat Hashem, when Sukkot comes along. And so, Sukkot represents everything we've achieved, especially the climax of Yom Kippur and the Anan HaKtoret, the Achat Bashana, the once a year representation of the Yechida, the core essence of the soul laid bare and revealed, the incredible connection of the Neshama, what's called Yechida Leyachtach, the oneness. That oneness, that is the very verbiage that we speak of in the Hoshana prayer. Chavuka Udvukabach, Yechida Leyachtach. May Hashem give us the privilege of spending as much time as possible in our Sukkot. And may we together merit not only to experience Yashas Choshech Sisro, that which is beyond our fathomability in the flesh as we sit in the Sukkah, but may we merit to see this and experience it through the prism of our own minds and emotions in the most literal way with the coming of Mashiach, in which time we will together sit in Sukkot Shalom, in Hashem's holy city of Yerushalayim, in the Sukkah of David HaMelech, b'mheira u'bi'ameinu, speedily, and in our days. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me today. And let us hope and pray that this is the beginning of the happiest time in history. Amen.